Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to KCBS In-Depth, a discussion of one of the topics making news this week. This is KCBS In-Depth. This past week, California set a new, higher standard for when police officers are permitted to use deadly force. Supporters of the change, including Governor Gavin Newsom, see this as a watershed moment for policing in the Golden State and say the new law is an important step in reducing the number of police shootings. We are doing something today that stretches the boundaries of possibility. It sends a message to people all across this country that they can do more. But now that the new law has been signed, what can we really expect to change? I'm Keith Benconi, this is KCBS In-Depth, and today on the program, we're going to put AB 392 under the microscope to find out why many have high hopes. The bill will basically make everyone in California safer. It will not bring back those that we've lost, but we hope and pray that it will prevent those from being lost. And why others are not expecting much to change at all. Right now, there's still loopholes that at the end of the day, the DA and the judges are going to have a say-so on finding it justifiable or not justifiable. All that and more, coming up. We'll start with the basics. We're talking here about the standard in place dictating when police officers are permitted to use deadly force. The old standard permitted deadly force only when deemed reasonable, given the circumstances the officer faced. Under the new standard, officers can use deadly force only when necessary. Now, that wording change may seem pretty subtle, but advocates hope it'll push officers to adopt more de-escalation tactics and also help hold police officers accountable. For more on where this law came from, we're going to welcome onto the program now KCBS political reporter Doug Sovereign. Uh, So, Doug, you monitored the signing ceremony on Monday. Lots of fanfare there, lots of celebration. But making this law a reality, it was a pretty hard-fought battle at times. So start us off at the beginning. Where did AB 392 come from? Well, there's obviously been an effort for a while in California and other states across the country to change the use of force standard, and and those uh, gained momentum with each successive shooting of an unarmed uh, person or somebody by mistake uh, by police uh, across the country. And the shooting of Stefan Clark in Sacramento, I think, was the last straw in California when police mistook his cell phone for a gun. Uh, that really gave this momentum. And Assemblywoman Shirley Weber of San Diego, who's kind of a force of nature, uh, took it on herself to get this through. She was the first African-American lawmaker in the state from from anywhere south of Los Angeles. Um, and she pushed this through. And um, initially, Governor Brown uh, had no interest whatsoever. She got nowhere with him. Uh, she tried again under Governor Newsom. And uh, this time, uh, she was able to get it through, although with significant changes to the bill as it went along. Yeah, let's talk about those changes and where they came from. So this occurred earlier this year. Why did this become such a controversial bill? Why were many police officers very concerned about the earlier version of this bill? And how was it ultimately changed? 
Right. Well, the law enforcement community obviously oppose this. They don't want anything that will uh, expose their officers to legal liability. And they fought it hard, especially since they knew Governor Brown had their back. When it became clear that Governor Newsom was actually interested in possibly signing some form of this, they backed off a little bit and they worked with uh, Weber and with the governor and with others in, in the Capitol to to make some amendments. And um, the people who were most in support of this measure describe it as watered down. Black Lives Matter pulled its support. But it got to the point where Weber could accept it, feeling that it was a first step at least. And the law enforcement agencies, uh, you know, the police chiefs association, et cetera, they didn't end up supporting it in the end, but they didn't oppose it. They took a neutral position. So they were no longer lobbying against it. And that enabled a lot of lawmakers to vote for it. And among those amendments, the original bill had a, a very – so, so the, the law changes the standard. So now instead of saying, well, it was reasonable for this police officer to open fire, now it has to be, was it necessary? Was there an imminent threat or peril? Which is quite different, but the, the initial bill defined that. It defined what necessary meant. It required them to use de-escalation tactics before using deadly force. That was all taken out. So now it says necessary – but it leaves it open to prosecutors in the courts to make that judgment and perhaps a jury in some cases whether it was necessary or not. It doesn't really define what that means in the bill. And while it recommends and suggests that they de-escalate before using deadly force, it does not require them to. And those are two very significant changes to the legislation. And given those changes, how was the final version of this law received by those who had supported it? I know a lot of people that had supported the bill earlier pulled their support when these changes were made. Yeah, I mean, those changes cost the bill the support of some people, but the majority and many of them were at the bill, the bill signing ceremony. I mean, you had dozens of family members of shooting victims. The majority seemed to think, hey, it's a first step. It's a, it's a landmark move just to get from reasonable to necessary. More cops will be held accountable when they make a mistake. Uh, the rest of the nation may follow, and there's room for more changes and, and fine-tuning as it goes on. So they're sort of cautiously optimistic that this will make a difference. Now, you know, two years ago, 172 people were shot to death by police in California. Last year, it fell to 146. We'll see if it continues the downward trend. And if that downward trend accelerates with the changes in this law, I think people will feel like it's having some success. All right. And the last point that I want to touch on is I know that there is a companion bill for AB 392. The companion bill would promote more training for police officers, give them more training in de-escalation tactics. A lot of that training that uh, supporters of AB 392 are hoping to see. Uh, Tell us a little bit about that companion bill. I understand that it uh, hasn't passed yet. So where are we with that? Right. So that bill is SB 230. It's a Senate bill. And the the police and sheriff and, and highway patrol community is very much pushing that because they want it to be very they they want their officers everyone to be trained in what this new standard means so that it's crystal clear they want money from the state to pay for that they're really pushing this hard it has already made it through the senate now it's in the assembly and it's sort of in legislative limbo it's in the appropriations committee it has to pass by the end of september um, for that to take effect it has to get to the governor's desk by then uh, if it doesn't you know the standard is the standard that law stays on the books but um, there's concern about how police agencies will comply with it and what will happen going forward. And uh, so the police agencies really, really want this companion bill passed so that they can make sure everyone is trained properly. And there is also fear from some of the proponents of this change 
that somehow something in that bill may water down further the new standard. So there's a bit of a fight there, and we'll see how that plays out over the next, what, six weeks or so. All right. Well, clearly, this story did not end with that signing ceremony that took place on Monday. Uh, but we do thank you for keeping us up to date on this. That was KCBS political reporter Doug Sovereign. Thank you, Doug. My pleasure, as always. I want to remind our listeners that you're listening to KCBS In-Depth. Today, we're discussing the just-signed police use of force law that supporters hope will reduce police shootings in California. Up next, well, whenever we talk about policing, there's a lot of other things that come with it. We've also got to talk about the law. We've got to think about human behavior. We've got to think about things like social impacts, all of which is to say there are just a lot of moving parts here. So to get some clarity, we now welcome onto the program Greg Woods, who is a professor at San Jose State University's Department of Justice Studies. Professor Woods, welcome to the program. It's good to be here, Keith. So I think a good place to start is give us some perspective. Let's take a step back from the law that we're discussing today for just a second. Give us some perspective on how California is doing as a whole in terms of use of police force compared to elsewhere in the country. Wow. Well, California has unfortunately led the nation in officer-involved killings uh, for five years now since we've been tracking this number since the summer of 2014 after the death of Mike Brown in Ferguson, Missouri. And that tracking is relatively new. I mean, before then, the the news out that we, I think, was a shock to many in America is those numbers just weren't really being kept in a, in a big way. Uh, those numbers were absolutely not being kept. In fact, they were being explained away in all kinds of uh, scenarios. Uh, most um, uh, popularly was probably that Uh, Suicide by cop was the ultimate objective of the individual, and that's why they uh, chose not to be compliant under that uh, set of circumstances, which led to their um, death. Wow. All right. Well, let's get back to that law now, now that we uh, have set the table a little bit, and talk about what is really changing here. We've been throwing around the terms reasonable and necessary a lot on this program. On its face for the layman among us, and I, I count myself among that, hard to see exactly what's changing there. So break down the significance of that term. We're going from reasonable to necessary. Yes. Well, the new law actually changes that standard. It increases it substantially from a reasonable standard to a necessary standard. Uh, since 1989, we've had a case called Graham versus Connor, which has set the standard federally. Uh, this is a case that comes out of North Carolina. And based on a totality of the circumstances, a law enforcement officer may use deadly force so long as they are reasonable in doing so. Now, what is reasonable? Reasonable means that basically, based on a totality of the circumstances, that reasonable, objective law enforcement officer, based on all of their training and expertise, reasonably concludes that their life is in danger, that imminent life is in danger, whether it be theirs or or someone else's. Uh, In addition, a great bodily injury might very well be immediately suffered. And as a result, if that is the scenario based on the Graham versus Connor standard, which is the standard in the nation, based on a totality of the circumstances, a law enforcement officer may reasonably apply deadly force so long as they are reasonable in concluding that they have an imminent death uh, or great bodily injury awaiting them. Now, this brand new law changes that standard. It increases it from reasonable to necessary, which means that law enforcement officers in California must now exercise non-lethal responses to uh, the furtive actions of an individual in the community. Uh, They must uh, use de-escalation techniques. They must uh, 
uh, become familiar and apply crisis intervention techniques before they decide to use that level of force, which will eliminate the threat and ultimately uh, end in the death of the individual because it is necessary to do so. So that is the standard that has changed. California has now increased the standard through which a law enforcement officer must conclude that they can apply deadly force uh, in any given situation. And to just break that down even further, my sense is when you hear the term reasonable, that sounds like a very subjective term that's based on the judgments of the individual that's in that situation. Necessary is something that we could all have a conversation about after the fact. It sounds like some something that you could make an assessment as an outside observer of more easily. Well, if we think about reasonable versus uh, necessary and we consider whether or not there's an objective or a subjective standard. Uh, Currently, we can refer to the objective standard to determine what a reasonable police officer might do under a similar set of circumstances. Uh, But what is different now is that we have changed that standard, increasing it to necessary, yet there is a nebulous interpretation as to what that language means in the actual legislation. Uh, What this means is that we're going to have to open ourselves up to subsequent legislation, also subsequent litigation to continue to try to define what necessary means. This is going to take a law enforcement officer making the decision to apply a level of force which amounts to the death of an individual, and then that decision is going to be challenged in a courtroom. The decision of that court will probably be appealed, and it will probably be appealed all the way to the Supreme Court and might very well challenge the national standard that has been established by way of Graham versus Connor since 1989. And this is probably a good place to dwell on the amendments that were made to the this law because there had been in the past, a previous version of the bill had a definition for necessary. That definition was taken out. Uh, tell us a little bit about what that amendment did to this law. From what I understand, if we think about the, 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 the committees, the back rooms, the deal makings uh, that are at Capitol, uh, in the capital city there of Sacramento, uh, what we see are uh, two divergent interpretations of reality. And in order for uh, these two divergent sides to uh, coalesce and come together and agree upon moving forward with this particular legislation, uh, they wanted to be assured. Uh, assured that they could uh, remove uh, some of the stipulations which might make it completely uh, overly onerous for law enforcement. In other words, the fear is that this new standard would actually create uh, harm and uh, the likelihood that more law enforcement officers might be losing their lives in the line of duty. Well, because there was a checklist in a previous version, and and the thought was that it would just add so much mental burden to uh, police officers in a life or death situation that they their 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 response time would be too slow. They wouldn't have their heads in the right place, and it could lead to some dangerous situations for police officers. And if you consider that that burden. Uh, let's uh, not only examine this most recent uh, bit of legislation, but let's also examine some of the other uh, legislative maneuvers that have uh, visited themselves within the realms of the law enforcement community. Uh, This year, uh, body camera footage is now automatically discoverable uh, based on the situation. Uh, Background information of uh, particular law enforcement officers' uh, history is now uh, searchable and and, uh, discoverable. And so um, we have a number of measures that are coming from the legislature that are uh, putting the onus on law enforcement to address this problem. And uh, that's the scrutiny that will be visited in the court of public opinion, but also in the courtroom. And uh, when it hits the courtroom, then that's going to actually affect uh, the culture. 
And, 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 and when we're talking about culture, really, uh, that's, that's the essence of the problem here. Tell us a little bit about a lot of people are hoping that this will result in increased training and de-escalation uh, tactics for police officers around California, uh, especially given the extra scrutiny that officers will be given. It's thought that this law will be a, a huge incentive for police departments to seek out that kind of training, promote that kind of training. Tell us a little bit about what that training would look like and what de-escalation training can accomplish. Yeah, well, the Companion Senate bill does um, mandate uh, obligatory de-escalation techniques uh, to be trained to all law enforcement officers. That means that we have non-lethal ways through which to contain an area, to eliminate opportunistic targets, and to decrease the, the stress and the tension of the moment. And uh, hopefully if, if we can do that theoretically, then we can uh, talk a person from acting uh, violently, uh, either against themselves or uh, precipitating this kind of response by law enforcement. Um, if we can mandate all law enforcement officers to have this kind of training, expertise, understanding that they can insert into any kind of interaction that they might have with members of the community, then that absolutely will help to decrease the likelihood that somebody might be killed at the conclusion of that transaction. All right. Uh, on that note, I want to remind our listeners that you're listening to KCBS In-Depth. Today we're speaking with Greg Woods, who is a professor at San Jose State University's Department of Justice Studies. We're talking about what California's new police use of force law could actually change in the state. Uh, referred a second ago to the reaction to the law. Let's, let's get into that right now, because some believe not much is actually going to change here. Uh, interesting to hear that point being made. Uh, I heard, in fact, both from law enforcement and from critics of law enforcement. So I want to bring in some of those views right now. Uh, first, I spoke earlier with Rosie Chavez. She's an organizer with social justice group Silicon Valley Debug, which works with the families of those killed in police shootings. Her group uh, pulled their support from the law following the amendments we discussed earlier. And she believes those amendments have watered down the measure's effectiveness. We all looked at it as, would our loved ones still be alive? Or would it have prevented them from being killed with this law the way they have it today, what they signed today, it wouldn't have prevented it. So we're saying that's not what we want. Now, many on the law enforcement side agree with Rosie on one thing. They also don't expect this law to change much, but for a very different reason. Here's Sean Pritchard, the vice president of the San Jose Police Officers Association. This simply elevates the use of force standards for all law enforcement agencies. And we are already practicing that here at San Jose, as, a, as a, uh, a lot of large police agencies are as well. So it really doesn't change anything for us. So some are not seeing this as quite the watershed moment. Others believe to be here. Let's tease out the points uh, that they're making uh, and, and take them one by one. Uh, starting with another concern that Rosie Chavez rose, uh, that's uh, with Silicon Valley Debug, that is that this new standard leaves too much room for interpretation. And you kind of raised that issue a moment ago as well, that this is really something that is going to be litigated. What exactly does necessary mean? Uh, what can we expect from that process? Uh, Rosie is concerned that if all the discretion is put in the hands of judges and prosecutors, she expects them to just uh, interpret that rule in a way more favorable to law enforcement. Well, it sounds like she sees no causal relationship between the language and the legislation and the actual reality on the uh, streets of the state of California. In other words, uh, let's remember that many have referred to this legislative bill as the Stefan Clark bill. Stefan Clark was killed in Sacramento, uh, the victim of uh, an officer-involved shooting. Uh, he was unarmed. 
And uh, he would have been 24 this month, 24 years old. So the Stefan Clark bill that we're now discussing, which is elevating the, uh, the standard, elevating the standard to necessary, yes, there is an ambiguity associated with what necessary means, which will welcome future legislation. And litigation, as you said. And litigation. I find it disheartening uh, that we have a level of hopelessness in the community when it comes to this particular issue. Uh, we are absolutely identifying a trend that needs attention. This is a societal problem which begs for a legislative solution, but this also begs for a community solution. So not only are we going to have to wait and watch as this law is applied uh, ostensibly to a law enforcement officer who chooses to use a level of force which amounts to the death of an individual, and when that is challenged and this law is actually applied, we're going to determine what those factors are that come together and actually amount to what is necessary. And uh, until that happens, uh, it's going to be a wait and see situation. But I would like to uh, align myself on the side of hope and, uh, and, and hope that this will at least begin the conversation so that we can uh, bring attention to this very important issue and uh, hopefully uh, you know, turn the tide, as it were. Mm. I want to return now to this notion of training. I know that this is something that you've worked on. You have actually consulted with the San Jose Police Department, uh, helping them get this training done. Tell us a little bit, for those of us that are not in the law enforcement community, what does this training actually look like? Uh, hypothetical role play scenarios. Uh, we look to uh, uh, the, the depth of the uh, of the of the problem of the matter, uh, listening skills, uh, people skills. Uh, really, what we're talking about uh, when we're trying to solve the, the bevy of problems, uh, probably the most prolific prolific of which would be these officer-involved killings, we need to have a community-based solution. In other words, community policing, policing by consent. If a law enforcement officer engages with a member of the community, we presume that that law enforcement officer will be conducting themselves pursuant to the demands of the community. And if we can also hold the individual community member accountable for knowing that we hope and we acknowledge and we consent and we condone the way that those law enforcement officers are conducting themselves, then we are more likely to be compliant to their reasonable requests. It's when the compliance is not received that the tension um, begins. And that's when we need to de-escalate the situation to hopefully keep um, violent conclusions from showing themselves. And where, in your view, has that disconnect been? Because if, if the hope is that we can build a stronger bond between law enforcement and the communities that they serve and protect, I, I think it's fair to say that in a lot of communities we're not seeing that trust right now and we're pretty far from seeing that trust. So where is that disconnect and how do you rebuild that trust? Well, this is a very long uh, story that we have here in the American experience. Uh, the trajectory of oppression is, uh, is, is wide-ranged. Uh, we've taken all kinds of um, uh, legislative and also uh, uh, um, adjudicative type uh, procedures to improve things. Uh, following the Civil War, we passed the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. It's that 14th Amendment that delivers all of these uh, rights from the Constitution into our, our own laps. And so when we're interacting with these agents of the government, we can rest upon a Fourth Amendment, uh, Sixth Amendment, 
Eighth Amendment, Fourteenth Amendment rights, uh, not the least of which would be due process and equal protection. So what we have are dual narratives. One is uh, uh, founded on a legacy of oppression, and the other one is founded on a legacy of unity and consensus and a constitutional mandate that we're all in this together. And so ultimately the problem is a cultural one, and it's not unique to the relationships between law enforcement and members of the community. Around the nation, we have lost our uh, legitimacy when it comes to the faith in government and governmental institutions. Probably uh, the most noticeable of all of these governmental institutions roll around in the form of a patrol vehicle in your neighborhood. And so when you see these people come into your neighborhood, do you know them? Do you know their name? Do they know your name? Are they the face of the oppressor? Are we watching a mobile paramilitary, hyper-masculine subculture uh, having their way with members of the community? Or are we being policed in a way that is consensual and pursuant to the reasonable demands of those people who are being policed? And so if we look exclusively to the legislative maneuver of uh, increasing that standard through which a law enforcement officer might make the decision to apply that level of force, which will amount to the death of an individual, does that necessarily mean that we're going to uh, create trust, create faith in the, in the governmental institutions that we uh, maybe once had, maybe never had at all? So this is going to take uh, more than a legislative maneuver or a handful of legislative maneuvers. This is going to take a cultural ground swell of a shift to make this problem go away. All right. I think that that's a, a great point to end the meat of this uh, interview on. But I want to just open things up one last time to another clip from Rosie Chavez with uh, Silicon Valley Debug. She was pointing out that while her organization pulled support from the law, many family members of those killed in police shootings do support the bill in the did support the law in the end. I believe they feel it was a direction towards change and that we weren't, you know, we, we did one step towards change, which I get. Um, if they change the law that hasn't been changed in over 100 years, that's great. Now it's to sit back to see if something's really going to change. So she's talking about monitoring to see how things will really change. Let, let's get your perspective. What are you going to be monitoring as a sign that this has led to real change and perhaps could lead to change beyond California as well? Well, the ultimate test is going to be whether or not we have a decrease in those officer-involved shootings, officer-involved killings in the great state of California. If we can turn the tide, then perhaps this could be uh, part of the solution. Um, but I'm going to continue to monitor a number of things. Uh, not only are we going to look at the amount of people who actually uh, die with uh, police bullets in them, but let's look at some of the other um, situations. Uh, let's look at uh, those people who engage with law enforcement that suffer from uh, mental illness. Uh, let's uh, look more at these statistics to determine what happens to the police officer should they have been determined to have um, uh, exercised that uh, that decision to use deadly force in error. If the law enforcement officer uses that level of force in error, will they help be held accountable uh, pursuant to this uh, legislative measure? Um, will the law enforcement officer, will the community now change their approach toward these kinds of scenarios simply because they fear uh, being um, uh, disciplined? Statistics, um, they interpret different things. And we might be able to uh, say that, uh, well, con con consistent with uh, this notion of the Ferguson effect, where law enforcement officers might 
uh, be less likely to engage with members of the community uh, for, for fear that they will suffer undue scrutiny as a result. Well, uh, if, if that's the case, then maybe we will see a decrease in officer-involved shootings, but we'll see an increase in violent crime and property crime uh, pursuant to uh, Heather McDonald's notion in her book, The War on Cops. Mm. All right. So a lot to be watched for there, a lot to consider. And we will keep an eye on it here at KCBS, but we're going to have to close this out for today. We have been speaking today on KCBS In-Depth to Greg Woods. He's a professor at San Jose State University's Department of Justice Studies. Professor Woods, thanks so much. It's good to be here, Keith. Remember, you can find past episodes of KCBS In-Depth online at kcbsradio.com or wherever you get your podcasts. For KCBS and In-Depth, I'm Keith Manconi. Thanks for listening. You've just heard KCBS In-Depth, a news interview program for all news 740 and FM 106.9 KCBS. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile Essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.